I'll try not to interrupt you this time. Okay. You ready? Yeah, I'll hit my own mute. <laughs> <laughs> That's called just being quiet, John. You don't have to hit anything. You just got to you just got to be quiet. That's all there That's is. That's the problem. That's the problem. Okay, you ready to do this? I am. Hello, John Schuler. <laughs> Hello, Brandon Gore. Coming in hot. Coming in yeah, hot. Yeah. How are you feeling after uh, four days or three days in Tennessee? I'm feeling great. I shut yesterday, rest of the afternoon off. I just shut myself off, turned the phone off, and I wouldn't say I vegged on the couch or anything, but I just I shut the whole day off so that I could gather again, got a night's sleep. So no, I'm feeling a hundred percent energized today. I'm ready to roll. Nice, nice. I'm still recovering. It's okay. I'm getting there. But, um, you know, we should talk about, I have a list of things to talk about today, but we should talk about really quick the the hoedown, the concrete hoedown and the holler. So, you know, 2022, which was the last year of the hoedown we held, that was the first time we ever held it. And we went into that with zero plan. We didn't have a plan for what we were going to do. We didn't have a plan for the format. We didn't have a, we, we had zero idea how it was going to go. And when we walked away from that, we we're like, holy crap, that couldn't have gone yeah, any better than it did. And kind of the problem with things, you know, they say that the worst thing that can happen to somebody is you win your first horse race. And that actually happened to me. The very first horse race I ever bet, bet on, I won. It's like getting up to bat, hit your first home run, and you don't, you don't have no idea how you did it. Yeah, and then you can't ever do it again. Right. You know? And so it was one of those things, like, the first time we did it was so great. It was so, so just phenomenal of an event that 2023, there was a little bit more to live up to because 2022 is so good. Same thing as last year. You and I walk into it, no plan. Mm-hmm. We're just going to figure it out as we go. And so we show up to um, to. I think Tennessee. that's what makes it fun, man. It, I mean, it, it's it's playing with, power, with, with dynamite, though. You know, it's like one of those things that could go really good or really bad, and you just don't know which way it's going to go. You know, we showed up to Tennessee, and, and we had this rough idea of making an air cannon and concrete projectiles. But both right. those things, logistically, there was a lot to figure out. Because, A, we've never built an air cannon. I tried to look up plans online. Everything was using propane and butane and hairspray and all this kind of stuff, and I don't want to do any of that. And it was really complex, the, the, uh, the different plans I was finding online. I want to do something simple and, you know, something that we could um, build that would be safe. And then the second part was a projectile because the projectiles have to fit in the, the chamber of the air cannon. And it needed to have a little bit of a safety margin so it wasn't too tight. And um, we had to do that. So, you know, we showed up the day before and we went to Lowe's and you and I just winged it. We just, we just figured it out. And we got lucky every now and then a, a blind squirrel finds a nut and, you know, we did it again. And so we, we went into this hoedown with this plan and it was better than expected. We had a full house. It was an amazing group of people. The, uh, the projectiles, the concrete, all that, the air cannon part was super fun. The food was phenomenal. Gilbert and Michelle came up again and, uh, and prepared phenomenal barbecue. Oh my God. It was, it was insane. Yeah. Dusty had a musician come Friday night, and that was incredible. Right. It was, it was, I can't imagine how we could make it any better. There was nothing that could have been done better than the way that went. And I'm, I'm just, I'm feeling great about it. But what I wanted to really hit on, on the whole hoedown was community. You know, community is one of these, these, um, catchphrases, these words that people throw around. Oh, we stand for community. We stand for, for community. But talk is cheap. Without action, it doesn't mean anything. And so the concrete hoedown, this is a manifestation of a core value of Kodiak Pro and of John Schuler and Brandon Gore and Dusty Baker and Joe Bates. And that is we want to build community. We want to foster friendship, camaraderie, mentorship. We want to be there for each other. And that's what this was about for me. And and that's what it was. So we had people from all walks of life. People had never used Kodak. People had never been to concrete design school and everybody was welcome, you know, with open arms and it was just a great time. And so, you know, that's what I want to say is, is this event for me was really the, the um, manifestation of that core value of community that without action, things it, talk is cheap without action. So, you know, a lot of people say it, we're doing it. What are your thoughts? Oh, 100% agree. I was talking to AIM this morning, 
And I was trying to define, because, you know, as your wife, she'll just say like, hey, I saw the pictures that looked like you had fun. And I'm not saying we didn't have fun, but I could tell just by her seeing what was, you know, whatever, photos, videos, and yeah, it's actually fun. But I was trying to define what it was. It's um, compared to things like hoedown and pinnacles and workshops. And, and then I came up with the idea that, that really it's like, I hate to say it, but it's more like a retreat. It's team building and continuing to foster these relationships with each other. And I think, not I think, from my point of view, the biggest difference and will continue to be the big difference in what and I'm just saying Kodiak, ICT, what this group of individuals stand for is we're still all doing it to, together. We're not meaning you and me or, or anybody else. Uh, there's no, I've sometimes heard the words of the hierarchy and no, man. I mean, we're down in the trenches too. And this community that comes together in this case, to do this, but it goes further than that. I mean, these guys are on my speed dial. We're on theirs. They call when they have trouble or want to run ideas. Um, if work's slow, you know, feed things to them. I mean, that's what this is all about. And these last few days and continuing to build on all of that as a retreat, getting to know each other far deeper than just a picture online you know, I mean, we know these kids, family and kids, and I mean, it's 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 really amazing when you take it outside. I guess what I'm saying, this is not just about pozzolans and cement. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and sure, it's having fun. There's no question about it. Sure, it's having a great time, but it's having a great time with these these makers and artisans and just plain human beings. I mean, right. You guys brought their wives and their kids out and it was just great time spending this all together. And then this wasn't even all about concrete itself. I mean, the conversations on the table about, like I said, well, so-and-so who's hit a slow period, like, Hey, how do we all help out? So there isn't a slow period. What's some ideas and how do we build in different ways. And the fact that I'm going to say the core or, or the center, maybe not necessarily the core, the foundation is built around people and products that helps foster the success in business and profit in, in, you know, it's just amazing, man. And it's, um, I don't know how else to say it. I know I've written this, but it's incredibly humbling and and I'm incredibly prideful about being part of this group of people. Uh, well, you also disclose your IP. Amazing. You also disclose your IP, John. Well, I always disclose my IP. Yeah, you said the secret ingredient in Maker Mix is the makers. <laughs> that, I'm it like, is. Why are you going to tell people that we're grinding up makers and putting in Maker Mix? Yeah, why are you going right. to tell? You know our well, competitors are listening, John. Well, because last time we made John. jokes about unicorn horns <laughs> and butterfly tails and, oh, man. Yeah. Um, no, again, see, there, there's a big difference right there alone that's often not talked about is we feed off, because we have the ability to, we feed off the input of the customer base to make upgrades, modification, and changes to the products that better benefit all of us using the product. Yeah. There's another part of the community. We're not a group of people that go, yeah, well, you know, you got to figure it out. And, and we won't. We won't upgrade something to help you do better. You have to modify what you're doing. I mean, that, that will always be a core of what we do as well. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because I put down on paper, and I, I didn't send this to you yet, but I put this mm. down on paper because I really feel that it is good to define what we stand for. And I wrote down core values for Kodiak Pro. Do you want to hear what I wrote, John? Sure. Okay, number one, community. Do I got to get tissue? No, no, no. This, this isn't a sad thing. No, no. I mean, like, I'm going to be so overjoyed. I'm going to cry tears of joy. Well, I know what you mean, but I'm saying no. <laughs> but <Go ahead>. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me. I think that well water still has you all loopy right now, man. Right, right. All that sulfur. Jeez. I definitely messed with my stomach. There's Louise. no question about that. Yeah. 
community, number one, core value community. And that's, you know, we, we share the passion for concrete and we're here to work hand in hand and to, uh, to build this with our peers, not with our customers, not with, you know, we're not above anybody. We're, we're here side by side. And so building the community of people that, that help each other and build each other up and mentor each other and are inclusive and supportive. That's what we're about. So that's number one. Number two, respect. Respect is a core value. Something that I've experienced over the years and you've experienced is material distributors being disrespectful, disrespecting the customer, whether that's playing games, which you've experienced and I've experienced where oh, yeah. they, they've held orders and not ship stuff just out of spite or whatever, which is a really weird thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But disrespecting the, the customer is not something that we'll ever do. So respect is a core value of us or of ours. Canceling orders out of just pure spite. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. It's that's ridiculous. Insane. So respect is a core value. Uh, the third one is integrity. So integrity is something we've talked about numerous times, but it's mm-hmm. a, it's a non-negotiable principle for us. And, you know, for me, integrity is doing the right thing when nobody's looking and always doing the right thing. And, you know, trust is one of these things I, I had an employee one time that, um, that lied to me and I explained to him, you know, I asked him several times and I already knew the answer, but he kept lying to me and finally told me the truth. I explained to him that trust is like a bank account. You make deposits, you make withdrawals. And sometimes you make a withdrawal so big that you can't recover. And that's where, that's where him and I were at. And for me, that's integrity. Integrity is one of these things you can't pick and choose. Once you've lost it, once you've said, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to have integrity in this interaction, in this situation, but not in this one, then you don't have integrity. Right. It's not one of the things you never get back. And so for us, it's insanely important that we conduct our, ourselves and our business from a point of integrity at all times. Do you want to say something about that? No, it's just, just that I agree. Just like you, I can come up with plenty of analogies that, that it drives me bananas. And, and hopefully I'm building this into my children and my family as well. So it's, again, it's, it's not like, power it can't be you just just don't shut it off you know turn it on when you need the the light on you turn it off when you don't need it anymore or it's uncomfortable it needs if you're going to stand for something or some things you legitimately put your cart away (laughs) even if it's 50 yards that you got to walk with that thing to put it in it's that's what it is and dude and you do it i I essentially you you didn't watch it there's this tiktok guy that chases people around that don't put their card away <laughs> and throws magnets on their cars that say they didn't put wow. their card away. And then they get out and they take it off and they throw it. And he's like, come on, you income poop. Just put your card away. Come on, come <laughs> on, mister. And then they chase yeah, him. Right. They threaten to kill him and stuff. And he's just like, but just put your card away. And I'm like, dude, this is John. When John retires and has nothing else to do, he's going to be at the grocery store yep. just harassing people. But anyways, I digress. And the last core value that we stand for is quality and value. For that, what I mean is we will always, always, always prioritize quality, quality materials, quality customer service, quality raw ingredients. What I've seen happen, and I've experienced this, is I've seen material manufacturers make choices on profitability. So they'll, they'll substitute, they'll replace key raw materials with something that's cheaper and the quality of the product that they're supplying to the consumer drops. Mm-hmm. And they did that from a perspective of profitability. Well, you know, I know that this uh, sand is 30 cents a pound. There's a distribu- distributor down the street that sell it to us for five cents a pound. It's an equivalent. Let's just replace it. And then they replace it to make more money. But then when you get it and you cast, you're like, whoa, what happened here? Why is this mix completely different? Why is it not doing what I'm used to it doing? And they did it from a place of, of budgetary considerations, but not the end product considerations. So something that we yeah, will line never... Line items rather than performance. Yeah. Exactly. Something we'll never do at Kodiak Pro is make those decisions, determinations based on profitability. We'll always make the absolute best product humanly possible, no matter what, even if it means we make less money on the product, which has actually been our experience to date, is material costs have gone up dramatically since we started this company, but our prices haven't. We've been slowly been eating away at our margin and that's okay. John and I talk about this on a regular basis. Should we raise prices? Nah, you know, not yet. We keep taking a haircut more and more and more 
on income, but whatever. I, I make concrete pieces for clients for a living. You make concrete pieces for clients for a living. And so we're, we're able to still provide for our families, even if we make less income with Kodak because our, our prices go up from our, right. uh, our suppliers. But anyways, my point with that is quality and then value. You know, for me, the best value possible is when you buy something one time only. That's the best value. And I've learned this lesson. It took me a long time to learn it. I used to buy the cheap tools. I used to buy the cheap boots. I used to buy yep. cheap whatever, right? Yep. And then after you buy four pairs of boots in a year, because you didn't just buy one quality pair that would last you a few years, you kept buying the cheaper boots that fall apart. You finally, it kind of clicks. You're like, ah, I need to spend, you know, two, $300 on boots instead of $90 on boots that I got to buy four times in that same period. It's cheaper to buy to buy quality. And so for us, the best value that we can provide to our clients, to our customers, to our friends and comrades is to give them the materials where they can do it one time. You, that's always going to be the most cost effective way. If you're using products that are, you know, some liquid polymer that's being downpacked and they slap some label on it, calling it gorilla, gorilla polymer, whatever it is, whatever name they come up for wolf polymer. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, and then you end up remaking that piece two, three times because of air pockets, because of cracking, because of sealer performance issues, whatever it is, then that was not a good value to the consumer. And so that's that's where I'm coming. But those are the four core values, community, respect, integrity, and quality. What do you think? Do you want to add anything? Do you want to remove anything? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I realized just because as, as, as I was listening to you, since we started on this adventure, I'm going to say one of the things that seems like it has r r rifled people, you know, or rifled their feathers, riled, riled their feathers, whatever it's called, riled their feathers, whatever, um, is when we talk about the quality. And the difficulty is still going to be using that and what it means to people. As an example, recently I saw a post by somebody again, giving all the amazing benefits of, uh, of something they were selling, something they downpack, something they bring in, something they sell. And when you read through these things so much for anybody who's done, let's say made run a business doing this is completely contrary to the performance that we get at the very end and the problems that it creates with what we're doing. Meaning, if you're making countertops, vanities, furnitures. Now, if you're making, I don't know, hanging wall panels or something, it's a whole different conversation or cladding or whatever the case may be, or, you know, a faux something for Vegas. Are you talking about, I think I know what you're talking about. Are you talking about the, um, the post where it's a blog post about the benefits of liquid polymer? Correct. Yeah. So I saw that same yeah. thing and I read it and I actually had a very similar blog post that I wrote 17 years ago, I want to say. Yeah. Um, about the benefits of liquid polymer. Sure. And oh, I get it. Yeah. But what it. I want to say is I read that and it was exactly verbatim what I wrote 17 years ago. And it's the talking points that are, that are sold by the liquid polymer manufacturers. Right. They say, yeah. Oh, eliminate, eliminates a seven day wet cure. Well, who's wet cure anyways? Number one, it eliminates a seven day wet cure, uh, better flexural strength, better color fastness, better abrasion resistance, better freeze thaw, blah, 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 blah. And that was what was sold to me. That's what Hiram Bolt sold me. He's like, oh, here's all the yep. benefits, young man. I'm like, yes, sir. Oh, sounds <laughs> good. And yeah. I told everybody that for years in my classes. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead and do that. And then just call Joe Bates and get some Maker Mix and TBP and cast them side by side and, and just see for yourself. Well, a, just yeah, see for and yourself. that's what I'm saying. You know, as long as the uncomfortable continues to be pushed as the comfortable, as you know, a new generation, you know, this old stuff is new information again. It's this old garbage is innovation again. Then us talking about what we talking about is always going to ruffle feathers. And that's just the way it is. But and it's difficult. That that's where I get frustrated, quite frankly. And that this is not meant to be insulting to anybody, is that when you put things side by side. And clearly it took me a long time to do it because I'll be the first to admit I bought into all of it as well, that putting powder or liquid polymer is supposed to help with the color fastness and this and that. And then you put what's being done now with 
codiac-based materials head-to-head against these materials with all these polymers and stuff, and you go, uh, what? Well, why is why is this one look so much better and cleaner? And and I'm going to use the word higher quality. And that's we got in some of those conversations, and I know we've talked about it in the podcast is. So when I talk about quality, what I my reference point is this: there's there's really only a couple ways that something, let's say, appears to be a better value, and that's based on quality. And that is either a you demand more money for it. Or B, it commands more money simply by the way it's how it looks, how it feels. I mean, all of us have been there, man. There's times when you see a, a cheap something next to a really well-built something, and all they we all agree there's there's no secret to this, but it's funny that when it's when it's talked about, there's so much of this information still being presented that way that it's a necessity and it makes it better. And, and historically we all look back and go, no, no, it doesn't. It, it hurts sealer performance. It ghosted it, whited out. It's a, so what's the benefit again? Well, the benefit is you have somebody who doesn't want to lose sales. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, putting that down. I mean, it is, they're trying, they're running a business, they have a product and they want to sell the product, and certainly they want to show you the benefits of that product. The interesting thing I will always say, and I think this is also a very big difference between us having done this for so long and being on both sides, is I have no problem walking through the benefits of the materials that we both make and provide, and at the same time, walk through if there's a downside. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what's what's the benefit? What's the downside? So again, if someone said, hey, I'm doing this big cladding and it's got to hang and it's got to be light. Well, then I would say, yeah, no, then don't. This is probably not in your best interest unless you get it really thin. You may want to put something like a polymer in that pumps up a bunch of air and makes it lighter. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I guess what I'm saying, we're not opposed to giving both sides. And that's the difficulty I have with some of the information out there. It's presented one way. They never talk about you know, the other side of it. And, you know, when, when these, I'm going to call them failures present themselves. And then you look back and say, well, geez. And then oftentimes it's like, we've always said, it's blamed on, well, it was the sealer. The sealer wasn't good enough and la, 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 la. And you look back and no, man, it wasn't a sealer issue at all. It's because I put these ingredients in that was supposed to make things so much better. And it actually made things so much worse. Yeah. You're poisoning your concrete. Well, Hiram Ball, God rest his soul because he's passed away. But Hiram Ball, when he was on the team that invented GFRC with liquid polymer, they were not inventing it for our industry. This industry wasn't Correct. even around then. So they weren't thinking of concrete sinks and countertops and tile and furniture and planters. That wasn't their their goal. Their goal was cladding, hanging on the side of a skyscraper 150 feet in the air. That's a completely different use. And if that is what you do then Maker Mix and Rad Mix are overkill for what you're doing. You can yeah. get away with pumping that. No, that would make it too dense and too heavy. And it's just unnecessary because right. it's 150 feet in the air. You're not right. care, you don't care about surface quality. You don't care about color, density, and richness. It's hanging 150 nope. feet in the air. So in that case, yeah, put a bunch of plastic in it. Just dump it in there. Sure. Put all that glue in there. Hang it you up. You're worried about sealer performance. Who cares? <laughs> no, no one's setting wine glasses on Exactly. It. Yeah. Who cares? And so... I, it's not that I fell for it because I don't think it, there was anything disingenuous with Hiram telling me these are the benefits. Those are the benefits for that use compared to the way they used to do it. The guys that used Agreed. to make cladding used to cure in water tanks for seven days. They used to do these things. And by adding this glue into the mix, they did see benefit. But for guys doing what we do and gals doing what we do, sinks, countertops, furniture, tile, planters, that's not the right product to use. That's not the right product to use. Polymer is what I'm saying. No, we've learned that too many times. Yeah. Too many times shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah. And if it did offer benefit, we would obviously use it. It doesn't. Oh. But again, Good. the salesmen out there that are downpacking some crap product are going to try to sell you the benefit for a completely different use for our industry. Try to sell you that bill of goods. Don't buy it. It's, it's garbage. 
Garbage in, garbage out. They're getting bad information. Their salesmen are trying to make a buck at your expense. Don't buy it. Anyways, let's move on. Let's let's get to uh, the actual meat of this conversation. You want to? What are we talking? Hoedown? No, we're down at the hoedown. Oh, really? I, I don't was know. Done I mean, I'm hoedown. looking. We're over 20 minutes right now. We can't go on this forever. Okay. Okay. I mean, we, we can hit the hoedown again next week. We can talk about it a little bit more. But what I want to talk about, Sean, and this was a conversation that came up at the hoedown that somebody asked me yeah. off to the side, was how do you form a slot drain for a sink? This was somebody new to concrete, mm. and they have a sink project, and they did not know how to form a slot drain. And it's something I take for granted because, you know, I've made hundreds, if not thousands of slot trains over the years. But I remember the first time I had to make one and it was a great mystery. I did not know how to make it. So before we go down the right way, I want to tell you the wrong way. And the wrong way is you make a a slot with a hole and then you glue a tray to the underside to catch the water. And this is the way that when I first started doing slot drains. There were some companies out there selling these tray systems that you would goop on with silicone and stick to the underside of your Oh, you mean the water comes through the drain and then drips into a tray? Exactly. And this is still to this day, John, if you make a a granite slot drain sink, this is still how they plummet. If you look underneath, like... Really? Yeah, I've been at restaurants where they have granite slot, like ramp sinks with slot trains. And if you look underneath it, because they, they don't have the formability that we have. They can't form in the way we can form in a drain. Oh, I just see that a long-term moldy, gross mess. That's what I'm getting to, John. Don't I'm take sorry. don't take my thunder, brother. My bad. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> gross. Sorry. Okay, my bad. So okay. there was this chain. That, that I'm sure they still exist. There's just not one around me, but it's called Kona Grill, K-O-N-A, Kona Grill. And I think they're mainly a West Coast chain, but they're they're all over the the West and Southwest. And they had these granite or maybe they were concrete, but I feel like they're granite ramp sinks. And they, all the restaurants opened up pretty close to each other in the sense of they built like 20 of them within a year or two. And they put these sinks in and they all had this tray system where you siliconed and you stuck it to the underside and then you plumb your drain to this tray. But if you ever go into Kona Grill, it's a seafood place and you go in the bathroom, it smells rough. It smells rough. And what smells rough is the drain because there's this hole that feeds into a tray that then opens up, but it never gets sunlight. It never gets airflow. You're washing your hands. You got crab juice. You got lobster. You're washing your hands. It washes down in there, and then it just builds up, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And the problem they had is, A, that was was problem enough because they could not access that tray to disinfect it. But number two, the silicone started to fail kind of about the same time, like a couple years down the road. And all the restaurants, the the tray started pulling away from the underside of the sink. And when that happened, it got really bad. Like, oh my God. And so they were based in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And they came and talked to me and they said, hey, you know, what can we do? And I said, well, the problem is with sheet goods like that, you can't form the drain assembly as you as you should. So what they did is really kind of the only thing they can do is goop something on the underside to attach a drain. Your best course of action is to to remove and replace with something made properly. And I gave them a quote and it was too high and they didn't go that direction. I don't know what they ultimately did, but that was the problem they were having. So that's that's the issue with that method of a slot train. So the method of a slot train that I use was Hold it, wasn't there a I'm interrupting you, I know that, but remember there's a HBO show called The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. And The Last of Us was based on just that, where over time, people got exposed to, what, fungal spores or something like that, right? Yeah, and fungus. then ended up, yeah. So see, that that's probably where... That's originated? Yeah, that's where that originated. Patient Zero yeah. was a customer at Kona Grill? <laughs> was it a restaurant? Yeah, Kona <laughs> Grill, right? Slot drain. I mean, I can't only imagine. Could you imagine... Finally being the plumber, and in other words, oh, they brought man. him in at X amount of time and then pull that tray down that was releasing, man, that would just be disgusting. Yeah, it is disgusting. And I think these systems still exist as far as this tray system, gooping it on. I think mm. that's still out there. But again, I think it's really geared for slab goods like Corian or granite where they're gluing sheets together and they don't have a way to form in a drain assembly as we can. 
Hmm. One of the great benefits of concrete is its formability. And it's really a very unique aspect of what we do compared to other materials. Yeah. The only one that would be similar would be um, cultured marble or, or what it's called, the, the fake marble, where essentially it's resin that they pour. And that's a very similar process where they build a, a multi-part mold and they pour the resin in there. But then it's plastic. I mean, you might as well use a polymer concrete at that point. You know, with a liquid polymer, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're going to be cast in plastic. So anyways, I digress on that. But the method that I use, there's a guy named Jared Enlow. And I haven't seen Jared in years, but Jared is a phenomenal concrete craftsman. He's in Bozeman, Montana. His company's called Elements Concrete. And Jared had a method for forming a slot train that he shared. I used to have this magazine called The Concrete Cartel. Again, no good deed goes unpunished. The Concrete Cartel. Mm-hmm. And Jared wrote an article for The Concrete Cartel on how to form a slot train. And it was a very, very, very good article. So I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to verbally describe how to form a slot train using his method. And at some point, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll make a little tutorial on it. But so here's what you do. Post the old article. I don't have it. I don't have it. Oh, really? I don't have it. When, when that whole thing, when I said, you know, this is a horrible decision, business decision, concrete curtail, I'm losing tons of money on it. Um, I ended up having thousands and thousands of, you know, copies in storage. When I moved from Arizona to Arkansas, I burned them all. I built this huge fire and I burned them all. I was throwing cases and cases in there. So they're gone. They're all gone. Anyways. What are you um, doing, man? That's terrible. You, know, you just want to take it Didn't with you. you have, don't you have it on a, z- a zip drive or a... On some old computer somewhere. But, you know, right. here's the problem with... I'm getting on a whole other subject here. But with Mac, with I've had two Macs now that I bought brand new and I had upgraded everything from Apple. You order it online, you get upgraded memory, upgraded RAM, upgraded... Blah, blah, blah. You know, spend four thousand bucks on a computer, and it just dies two or three years later. When it's outside of warranty, yeah. it just dies. And then you take it down to like these Mac Genius places, and they're like, oh, you know, we tried to extract it, but no, we can't get any data. Doesn't so I, seem to turn on. Yeah, what's I, wrong I've with had it? two of we, them we don't do this. Know what's wrong with two, it. and they yeah. say you'd be amazed how how common this is. Like daily, they get tons of this. So I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm looking at an Apple laptop right now. I got an Apple watch. I got an iPhone. I'm yeah. in the whole Same. ecosystem. But that being said, come on, guys. Come on. It's happened to me twice. Come on. Anyways, my point is I did have that stuff, but it's gone now. So I'm going to do my best to describe it. So the first part of this is the slot itself for the slot train. And for that, you want to go and you want to get half inch PVC, like polyvinyl chloride pvc foam board and you might be able to find this at home depot or lowe's you want it smooth you don't want texture a lot of the stuff i see at home depot and lowe's is textured like wood on one side you don't want that so it needs to be smooth on both sides for me i get it at a plastic supplier most plastic suppliers will carry pvc foam board they use it in a sign making industry that it's really easy to cnc route PVC foam board, half inch is what you want. So to that, you will cut your slot train. Now, when you're making a slot train, you need to think in the inverse. You need to think in, when I flip this over, I want the water to drain to the center, usually. I mean, sometimes I have the slot actually to where the water drains on one side or the other, depending on where the P-trap is. But the concept stays the same. So wherever the water needs to drain needs to be the lowest point in the final sink. But when we're making our mold, that needs to be the highest point when we're cutting the slot train, meaning it needs to angle. So it's going to be a triangle essentially. And the top of that triangle, when you're building your mold, when you flip it over, will be the lowest spot. And that's where the water will go. So you're going to cut your triangle to PVC foam board, bevel the edges, sand it, make it nice. You're going to silicone that to your mold. And then you're going to make the actual drain assembly. And so for that, you're going to go to the hardware store and you're going to get a grid drain assembly, grid drain. These are used for sinks without overflows. They have all the little holes in the drain anymore. They're like 13 to $15. It doesn't matter. You don't need to get like satin nickel, get the cheapest one they have grid drain at Home Depot Lowe's. And it's going to have 
when you open it up, it's going to have a, a down tube that screws into the actual drain assembly. So that down tube you want to keep. And then that drain assembly is going to have like a lock nut on it and a rubber washer. And it's the piece that's all threaded on the outside and it's threaded on the inside. But it's threaded on the outside, it's got the holes in it. You're going to cut off that bottom one inch, the bottom one inch. So the way to do this is to uh, screw down. So I put the drain upside down on my table. So the holes are facing down to the table and I screw down through those holes just with a, you know, Craig screw or whatever screw I've laying around to my wood table. And that locks it to the table. So it's not moving around. And you take a grinder with a metal, metal blade and you just eyeball about one inch down and you cut it off and you're wanting to keep that bottom one inch. And so if you look at it on the inside, there's threads that that tube, that, that uh, down tube can screw into. That's the piece you want to keep. The rest of it you can throw away. So then you unscrew it, you throw the rest of it away. Seems like a waste. It is a waste, whatever. Throw it away. So take that uh, lock nut that comes with a drain that's supposed to screw it to the underside of your sink, that big lock nut, and put it on upside down on the side that has the inside threads. So there's that little piece that you have that has the inside threads. Screw that lock nut on, on that end, upside down, and don't, don't screw it down all the way. You want to leave it protruding slightly. And the reason for that is later on when we're done casting, you're going to grind probably the bottom of your sink and you want to hit that lock nut before you hit those threads. If you were to keep that lock nut off and you grind and you hit the threads, you hit that, that piece you have in your concrete, you're never going to get that down tube to screw in because you just boogered up all those threads. So if you put that lock nut on and keep it proud a little bit, don't screw it all the way down. So it's just a safety guard. So when you're grinding and you hit it, you know, hey, I need to stop. I'm not going to keep going now because I'm going to, at some point, get into those threads. So anyways, uh, so you have this little one-inch piece. You're going to cut a piece of foam. There's a lot of different ways to do this. I actually have rubber pieces that I made that are permanent, but um, if you don't have those, you can just cut foam. So measure the the inside of that tube offhand. I want to say it's inch and a quarter, but it's just going off memory. But I just use a foam core bit, drill a piece of, you know, an inch and a half foam, and then take that piece of foam out. And that's what you're going to screw to your slot drain, to that, that very top of the triangle. You're going to put that piece of foam on there, just screw down into it. And then you're going to take that uh, little metal fitting that has the inside threads and that lock nut, and you're going to put it down. And you want those inside thread piece, that end, to be facing all the way up. So when you flip it over, that'll be the very bottom, and you can screw that, that down tube into it. So that is your assembly. So you have your slot drain, silicone to your mold. You have the foam attached to the slot drain at the highest point, And then you put that metal fitting on. And you're going to cast your concrete and fill it all the way up right to the top of that, that lock nut. You don't want to go over the lock nut, but you're going to fill it right up to that edge. And then ultimately after it cures, you pull the screw out. You take that foam out. You can just shoot air down there and the foam will pop right out. You flip the sink over. You pull your sink mold. You get that uh, slot drain out, that piece of PVC foam, bada bing, bada boom, there you go. The great thing about this is you ship it to the job site, the, the down tube is separate, they install the sink, then the plumber comes and he screws that tube into that fitting, just screws it right in, just like he would any other, any other sink, and hooks up his P-trap. The benefit of this is back in the old days, we would just cast a tube into the concrete. We'd have the foam slot drain and we'd cast a tube in. And the tube is permanently in the concrete. Well, inevitably, when people are installing the sink, and I, I ship my sinks, they're going to use it as a handle. They're going to carry it with that tube. They're yep. going to pick it up and grab it with that. They're going to set it down. It's going to catch the edge of the countertop. It's going to catch railing on stairs. And at some point, they're going to bend it. And once it's bent, you're screwed. If they bend that thing, there is no easy fix. And really, the, the only thing you can do is do it again. So having this removable uh, keeps it off for installation and allows it to be replaced. If for some reason it did get damaged, the plumber can easily pick up another one and screw it in, and then you, your, your sink is fixed. So that is how you make a slot drain in concrete. At least that's one method, but it's a method I've been using now for, I don't know, 2000... When was Cartel? 2010, maybe? 11? Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, I don't even know, but you know, for probably 12, 13, 14 years now, I've been using that method exclusively, and I've not had one issue... Every single client, 
has had great results with it. Nobody's had a single problem. And plumbers love it because, you know, they were, especially back in the day, they were used to seeing these, these yeah, simple, yeah, these whole contraptions, these Rube Goldberg things of, you know, siliconing and gooping stuff and trying to put a drain on it. And, you know, when they hear slot drains, some plumbers still have flashbacks, you know, of, of these horrible um, systems. And so I have had several plumbers over the years call and say, hey, we see on the plans a slot drain sink. How's that plumbed? And I explained to him, hey, we just cast this fitting in. We're going to ship it with the down tube that comes with the grid drain. You just screw that in, hook up your P-trap. And they're like, that's it? That's it. Easy enough. Done. So anyways, do you have any input, John? Well, listening to your method, and, and again, this is listening to instead of seeing it. <clears throat> the only thing I would interject that I did differently was that I epoxied the nut to the flange. And then when I cast, I put the, I essentially buried the nut because per your, per your, what you're saying is when I was grinding the bottom side, you didn't want to hit any of those threads. So when I flipped it over, the threads were, you know, let's say whatever that half inch deeper. So there was no, no chance in grinding. Instead you ground and you cut the whole flat flange. It just meant that the plumber, you know, the, the threads for the, whatever the down pipe or whatever was a little bit deeper. That's yeah. All. I think that's, uh, that's what I meant to say. If I didn't make that clear, that's, oh, I'm that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I just flipped it over. But the other side I saw was that regardless that you epoxied it together is by burying it like that, the concrete went around the nut, which in a way long-term prevented, even if somebody over tightened or whatever, there was no way to twist it, strip out. it. Yeah. 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 And epoxy, that's a good point, John. And that's a step I did forget is when you put that, that nut on that little piece that you cut off and you put it on upside down. It is a good idea to put a little bit of epoxy and then screw it on, on the outside. And that way, and let, and let it cure, I use five minute epoxy and I let it cure. That just locks it all together. So when some plumber is cranking on it, you know, he's got his, his, uh, pipe wrench and he's cranking on that under that. Yeah, that, that why they do that? I have no idea. Yeah, They don't need to. It's, it's always possible. Yeah. That they don't somehow make that inner, fitting strip out or, or spin out, which it could technically because concrete will form around it perfectly. And they could in theory back it out of the concrete if they wanted mm -hmm. to like a, a screw and a bolt, they could do that or a nut and a bolt. So by epoxy in that nut to it and then cast it in the concrete, now it's permanently bonded to that nut. So there's no spinning it out. It's, it's in there forever. So the, the only other things I was going to add had nothing to do with that. And I don't know if, uh, these names I'm going to throw out here in a minute are still doing it. But one guy that was making the plugs for a while was Mark Malonis. Yep, yep. I don't know if he still has those available. And he, he was making the rubber plugs for anybody that, you know, either didn't have the time and energy or, you know, just so he had those available. And then there was another one. Now, I have not personally picked him up, but um, Chad Guthmiller had made some, what appeared to be some pretty neat little uh, assembly that he did on a 3D printer. Nice. That was out of a plastic. So, but again, haven't used them. I know, I don't, again, I don't know if he still has them available, but he had uh, mentioned these, I don't know, X months ago that he had made them and was going to make them available. So that, cool. that would cut the whole assembly. And he had already 3D printed it. I think so it could be in from a plumber's point of view, a couple different ways. It would still be cast into the concrete and then it had the proper thread for either screwing on the downpipe or I think it, or you could glue, you know, PVC glue a, a downpipe on. So it was something like that. Like hmm. I said, so maybe those are things we could just, you know, throw the, if, if they're, if the two of those guys are even still making them, I have no idea. Sure. Well, that's a good input, input, John. So that was the, how to make a slot train. I got a question yesterday from one of our customers that has switched to Kodiak from a product he's using before. And he was asking about removing the cream layer. So he, he took training at another place and they define the cream layer as everything until you grind down into exposing sands. And I told him, well, I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying we define that a little bit differently. 
For us, the cream layer is when you cast concrete, there's this, this moment where the concrete interfaces with the mold material and it creates this kind of an eggshell layer. And when we demold it, if you don't take that off, you can scratch it with your fingernail. If you don't take that off, you just, you know, wash the concrete and you seal it. Well, that's going to be able to abrade off pretty easily. And so what we want to do is use acid, a muriatic acid that we dilute. Um, it can be anywhere from three to one, five to one, 10 to one, whatever. I mean, find what you're comfortable with. But I know that, you know, you and Dusty use a stronger acid. I'm using about five to one, five parts water, one part muriatic acid. But you want to strip off that soft layer. And once that's gone, when you seal your concrete, well, now you have a much more durable surface. You've profiled the surface on a microscopic level. You've made it yeah. to where the concrete can really absorb in. But you've also removed that soft layer. And so for us, and this is just terminology and, and what we mean when we say the cream layer, that's what we're talking about. If you want to get out a grinder and polish off that and get down to your exposing sands, well, that's more of a salt and pepper finish. If you keep going, you're going to get into, into a terrazzo. Those things aren't bad, but if you're using glass fiber, you are going to start to expose fibers if that's what you're doing. And so, you know, I'm doing SEC GFRC, SEC glass fiber reinforced concrete, and I'm just removing the cream layer with muriatic acid. If I were to take a water polisher and keep going, I'm going to start to see fibers. It's just the nature of SEC. So if that's what you're doing, you either need to use a face coat, which a lot of people do. Joe Bates is one of them where you spray face coat, or you could pour a layer, which is what I recommended to this person because they're doing a lot of SEC. I said, just, dude, just pour, pour a quarter inch, eighth inch SEC with, you know, your PVA fibers you want to use, and then pour the rest with the AR glass. And that way you can do your salt and pepper finish, really, you know, grind down into it if that's what you want to do and not expose any glass. Any thoughts? No, exactly. I, I always refer to it as the, the cast scum layer. So that's the, the cast. Layer. Is that the technical term? Cast scum layer? Yeah, cast scum. Well, that's when people <laughs> ask me, like, can I just clean it and, and seal? And the answer is always no. No, that, that whole, like, as you're referring to that interface, that moment of contact where it cured the paste and the form material and whether you used a release of some sort or not, you know, all of that gets it, let's say impregnated and absorbed into this micro layer. And yeah, no, that, that needs to be removed. And yeah. again, regardless of sealer that needs to be removed. Yeah. It needs to be cleaned off. And the best method is to, is, is clean it off enough that how would I describe it? I, I, to the point that you see the surface look, I'm going to use the word glittery because you know, the micro fine sands and the light kind of look, you know, looks like it takes on this glittery profile. Uh, and that's when I know I've removed everything without, so I haven't really exposed any, you know, 50 mesh or, or 30 mesh sands or any of that stuff. But, but the surface takes on this kind of like um, starry appearance. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's, it's tactile. So when I'm cleaning it with a Scotch-Brite, now, we should talk about that real quick because we do have a lot of new listeners and we have a lot of people new to Concrete that are listening to the Concrete Podcast. So let's just really quickly hit, and this is all on our website. If you go to KodiakPro.com, go to FAQ, we have this all in the ceiling protocol of how to acid yeah. etch concrete. If you don't know what we're talking about, what you want to do is you cast your concrete. The next day, you, hopefully you cure it properly, which we've talked about that a lot, and we'll talk about it more yep. in the future, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully you cure properly. When you demold it, you want to clean it. First of all, I use simple green and water. So I, I spray the whole piece down with simple green. That's a degreaser. You know, we have a lot of times wax in our form from where we wax the corners before we silicone. We have mold release, whether it's Aquacon or some other mold release. There's a lot of contaminants in the mold. And so you want to take simple green and wash your concrete first. That just gets any oily, waxy residue off the surface. Then, and you and I differ on this, and that's okay. You like to do it to dry concrete. I like to do it to wet concrete. But then you're going to apply your muriatic acid solution to the concrete. Whether you do it to wet concrete or dry, that's preference. I like to do wet. So I have the concrete wet. I have a pump-up sprayer. I do five parts water, one part muriatic, and I just start hosing it down. And I just keep moving. The, the benefit of a pump-up sprayer is, you know, you're just, 
and I yep. just keep moving around. And I set a timer, especially if I have multiple pieces. So I'm doing pieces at three, four pieces at inter, interconnect. They all need to be etched to the same level. I don't want to do one for three minutes, one for one minute, one for seven minutes, because they're all going to be dramatically different. And look, so if you're doing multiple pieces, especially set a timer. If it's just a standalone sink, then I don't really set a timer. I'm just watching it. But I just go around it for a minute or so. Keep it wet. Keep it wet with the acid. I just keep spraying it. And after about a minute or so, I rinse it off with water. And then I take a green Scotch-Brite and I scrub the whole surface everywhere. Down in the slot drain, in the sink, the edges, the tops, the sides. Give it a good scrub. Rinse it. And I maybe scrub it again. I look for areas that I missed because you'll see that cream layer come off. At that point, you see it just wash right off. That acid took it completely, it etched it, it softened it, and it's going to take it off. And at that point, it's tactile. It feels to me like, I would say, 220 sandpaper or so. That's about what it feels like, wet sandpaper. If you just rub your fingers on 220, that's what the concrete feels like now. Yeah. And that's what I'm looking for. And if that's what it is, great. Now, sometimes I let the concrete cure for longer due to whatever. Maybe I was out of town when I cast and it sat in a mold for two days instead of one day or three days instead of one day, covered up and, and cured properly. When I demold it, it is far denser, far yep. denser. And at that point, that one minute of acid etch probably is not enough. And I'll have to do it again, maybe again, until I get it to that level. It's going to take more because it's so much denser. But you're, what I'm going for is a tactile feeling and you'll know it. I mean, you can feel it with the Scotch-Brite when you're scrubbing. You'll, you'll know. And, uh, and then after that, once it's scrubbed and washed really, really good, get it all washed, then you want to dry it off. I take a squeegee. I squeegee off all the excess water. I take a clean white microfiber and I dry off so there's no water pulled because pulled water can stain it if it's sitting in the area and it just sits there for a long time. It can stain that spot. So I dry it off, let it dry, and then continue to sealing. And that is how I acid etch. Do you do it differently? Yeah, the only difference that anything we're just saying is same. Pump up sprayer and... Yeah, I, I find for me personally, but again, we're doing two different methods here, is when I take my solution over a dry surface, it ends up more even for me, meaning my my entire etch. But other than that, no, you know, I go over it enough. I basically drown it in it, you know, keep everything nice and wet, evenly wet the whole time. Let that go for whatever, let's say a minute or so, and then I scrub it. And then I rinse it and scrubbing is part of my rinsing process with fresh water is what I'm talking about. And same, squeegee it, dry it. Because if not, right, it leaves a potential to leave residue. I call them residue lines yeah, from the stains. squeegee or yeah. whatever the case may be. Yeah, so you dry it and um, I put it aside and let it go till the next day and to seal. You know, it's funny talking about this, <clears throat> how... You learn, you learn through failure. And for years and years and years, I would wax my sink molds with carnauba wax and buffet, carnauba wax, buffet, spray mold release, cast the concrete. And when I would go to acid etch, and I acid etched differently back then. Back then, we would dip a Scotch-Brite into a bucket of, of acid solution and then try to scrub the concrete. We're chasing it, just chasing it around. But I could never get the sink mold portion to etch evenly it would repel. And the reason was that wax had absorbed into the surface of the concrete and the, uh, it, was, it was repelling the solution to an extent. I mean, you could get it, but it took a lot more work. And what was happening was the top surface of the sink that didn't have that wax was etching quickly. And then inside the sink where I was really trying to fight it, it was etching less and you end up with these like very splotchy looking sinks where the top is overly etched, the inside's not etched enough. And I remember there was a guy that uh, was in Phoenix. He used to, to help me in my shop sometimes. His name was Brandon Boetto. And um, I think he's still around. Slab House was his company. But I remember Brandon and I were outside in the sun in Phoenix, acid etching these sinks. And it just all of a sudden made sense to me of what was going on. I don't know why it took me so long to figure it out. But I said, hey, dude, grab some simple green. So he ran in the shop, grabbed some green. I sprayed the sink. And they're black sinks. And immediately where I sprayed it, it went from being a waxy, you know, water repellent surface, it just took it off immediately. I was like, ugh, all these years I've been fighting it. And all I had to do was clean it with simple grain first. I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out, but it did. And then the, the second part of it was 
you know, we used to do the the dip in a bucket and scrub with the scotch bright method of acid etching, which if you're doing a big piece, you can really start to get behind. And you're over here scrubbing and over there it's drying and then that becomes this big stain that you can't get rid of. Right. And, you know, I was in Phoenix, it was hot. And I heard about Jared Inlow doing it with a pump-up sprayer. And um, this guy had working for him, Greg, he told me about it. And he's like, dude, Jared, he finds the laziest way to do things. Like he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to run around a piece, like killing himself, scrubbing it. He just found that just use a pump-up sprayer, just keep it wet. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. Now that I do it, it makes a hundred percent sense. So it's funny how through the years and progression, we figured out better and better ways, largely, you know, like Jared Inlow, for instance, with the slot train and with the spraying with the pump-up sprayer through other people's innovations, how, what they figured out. But anyways, that's uh, just a little back history of how these processes came to be. But I think that's it, John. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything on your mind? Well, I was going to talk about the hoedown. Again? <laughs> <laughs> That's how excited I still am, man. I don't think I've, I, I don't think I fully decompressed from some of the cool stuff. Oh well, I, I have tons of great video footage. I gotta go through and you know pick the key clips and put together a video, which I'll do in the next week or two, and we'll get that out there, kind of a video recap of it. Dude, it was well, like an example. I, I had no idea, and I know you didn't either. <laughs> that that we could sh- that with eighty pounds of pressure could launch a pound projectile nearly 300 yards. That was well, seven, crazy. 750 feet is what it was. 750 feet. And it was um, Jess Warren's. Jess Warren's, which was interesting. Yeah. So this was something that, uh, that I think is a great example of how the danger of somebody putting themselves at the top of a pyramid, of being the be-all, end-all of knowledge is mm-hmm. if you think you know everything, you're not open to learning anything, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 100% agree. I've been doing this for a long time, but I don't have it all figured out. That's for sure. And same with you. And I'm always, what I love about community is talking and learning from other people. And so here we are. We're, we're going to make these concrete projectiles. Jess Warren, who is a avid bow hunter he actually killed yeah, a 10 point right. buck the first day when he got there at dusty's place he went hunting got a 10 point buck that morning he's an avid hunter but he's very much into the science of projectiles of yeah. arrow design Arrows. yeah and mm-hmm. front of center and how much weight you need here and, and oh, there's a whole science to it and he's super 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 into it you know um it was incredible listening to him talk but he applied those physics considerations that you use for bow hunting for arrows to his projectile. And his projectile, I mean, my projectile, which was essentially just, you know, slug. like... Yeah, slug. I mean, yeah, I, I, slug, I, yeah. I tapered the end and I put rifling on it, but my projectile probably went 150 yards, so 450 feet. Yeah. Jess's went... that's where I was at too, right in that area, yeah. Jess's went 300 feet further than mine. Yeah. Which is incredible. You know, another 100 yards past mine. And it had to do with his knowledge of that, that aspect. And so, you know, that's just a great example of community and learning from each other and mentoring each other and admitting that I don't know everything and I don't need to know everything. And it's great to learn from people that know more than me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. So, and learn I, from each other's passions. Exactly, exactly. And then get passionate off other people's passions. I mean, that, that's just so cool. Yeah. Always be wary of a, of a cult leader that says they have all the answers and, you know, they're the end-all be-all because, you know, you might drink the Kool-Aid. I like Kool-Aid. <laughs> well, Jim Jones has some for you, buddy. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I'm getting ready to cast. I made 20 tile molds. I'm getting ready to cast um, a bunch of tile today in the next few days to ca- to tile the bathroom here in the new studio. So anyways, I'm getting ready to hop back in the shop right now and start mixing concrete. So yeah. Awesome, man. Get yep. to it. Yep, I will. Well, until next time. Oh, before we go, I have a workshop coming up December 4th and 5th, concretedesignschool.com. It is the fundamentals workshop. It is the class for people that are new to concrete that want to get off on the right foot. You'll learn the right way to do things. Come uh, come join us. We, we're actually filling up pretty quick, which is great. 
So uh, this class is going to cover the, the basics of mold building, the basics of templating, the basics of tool use, something that you know a lot of people don't talk about, but how do you properly use a scale? How do you properly use a mixer? Um, so we're going to go through that. We're going to go through casting, curing, sealing, and then we'll discuss installation. We're going to do this over a day and a half. It's going to be so a good. to show me how to, after all these years, how to properly use a track saw. I wasn't using it right. Exactly. So yeah. it's one of those things that um, this is going to be a basics class, but it's going to be a day and a half, December 4th and 5th, and it's going to be a great class. So if you're new to concrete, you're interested in concrete, maybe you took a class and it was it was too advanced and you want to kind of go back a little bit and, and start at the very beginning, this fundamentals class is for you. So go to concretedesignschool.com. You can register December 4th and 5th here in Wichita, Kansas, actually Goddard, or just right outside of Wichita. But uh, we'd love to have you. So there's that. But all right, John, let's get to it. All right, buddy. Adios, amigo. Adios. Have a great one. You too. Mm-hmm.